Hey, podcast listeners, this is Greg Dalton. You're listening to our new C1 Review, a podcast connecting highlights from three shows. Thanks for joining our conversation. This is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future. Today, Greg Dalton talks to two cabinet officials from the Obama and second Bush administrations about combating carbon pollution while promoting a robust economy. No growth is going to be sustainable. No prosperity is going to be sustainable if we don't have a clean, healthy environment. But the climate conundrum will only be solved if all the world's major polluters get on board, including China. We spent a long time talking to them about, you now know you have an air pollution problem. You've got to fix it. Would you mind thinking about that in concert with a carbon strategy? Greening Government Policy, up next on Climate One. Climate One is changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. These Climate One conversations, hosted by Greg Dalton, were recorded before a live audience at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan public forum in San Francisco. Climate change is impacting much more than the environment. It's also slowly changing the political landscape in Washington and beyond. What's the best way to move our economy towards a renewable future? More environmental regulation or less? More financial oversight or freer markets? And with mega economies like China and India creating ever-increasing carbon pollution, how do we bring our international friends and foes along with us? For insight into these issues, Greg talked to a former U.S. Secretary of the Treasury and to the current head of the EPA. Let's start with Henry Paulson. As President Bush's Treasury Secretary and a China expert, Paulson led U.S. policy toward China from 2006 to 2009. He's got a new book out called Dealing with China, An Insider Unmasks the New Economic Superpower. Here's Greg Dalton in conversation with Hank Paulson. You wrote an article in the New York Times last year on climate change. You said it presents risk to the economy and the environment. You said we're flying into a mountain in slow motion. We can see the crash coming, but we're sitting on our chance and not changing course. Why aren't we changing course? Well, climate change, I think, is a very difficult issue to deal with. It is... You know, I think the biggest risk, not just to the global ecosystem and the environment, it's the biggest economic risk we face. But we tend to deal with issues nationally when there's an immediate crisis rather than there's a longer term issue. So the financial crisis, as bad as it was, the government can come in at the end and do things that avoid the worst outcomes. The longer you wait here, the more costly and, and, and the more difficult it's going to be to, to avoid the worst outcomes. And also, we tend to deal with issues if we handle them at the national level better than the global. So it's, it's difficult politically, but that's the bad news. The good news is I, I think we still have time to act to avoid the worst outcomes. And as public sentiment changes... You know, you have to be optimistic that we can get there because the technologies do exist today even. And so there's, there's a lot that can be done, and it's just, this is, this is a matter of generational equity. One of the biggest things that happened in climate recently is, is a U.S.-China deal. You know, U.S.-China have agreed to work together on, on climate change, the two largest economies. You can't solve climate without U.S. and China. What's the significance of that deal? Well... I believe that this is the most important bilateral relationship we have in the world. And it's increasingly difficult and because they're increasingly a competitor. But if you look at the major issues there are in the world today, most of them are easier solved if we're working together, much more difficult if we're not. And so we're partnering with them in some things and competing in others. Now, a great example is climate change. 
because there it is impossible to avoid the worst outcomes if major developing countries, and particularly China, the largest emitters of greenhouse gases, aren't, you know, taking the necessary actions. And they, more than any other of the developing nations, understand the problem and are committed. And so I think that agreement was very important for two reasons. First, it demonstrates that they see the U.S. relationship as very important, or they wouldn't have announced that right there with President Obama. And secondly, it is a major breakthrough. It is very historic. I think it creates a opportunity to get much more done at Paris and beyond. And uh, it's a sign that, you know, China doesn't make an announcement like that in something publicly if they're not serious about dealing with the problem. And China's regime stays in power by increasing the living standards and material income of its people. Can they do that without fossil fuels or with fewer fossil fuels? Well, if you would look at the issues that the Chinese leaders are confronting today, right after corruption, the area that the people care the most about are the dirty air and the pollution. There's property rights, there's other issues that they care a lot about, but that is huge. And so the air quality, particularly in the Beijing, Urbay, Tianjin area, but in the whole coastal area, is so bad, and it is getting worse. The leaders are focused on that big time. And many of the things they need to do to solve that also make a big difference in climate. So your question is, can you balance economic growth with doing the right thing environmentally. You know, and I have always believed that the two go together. No growth is going to be sustainable. No prosperity is going to be sustainable if we don't have a clean, healthy environment. And unless you have a certain amount of economic success, it's going to be hard to have the ability to do the things you need to do. So these are the opposite sides of the same coin rather than being in conflict. And I believe this is increasingly understood in China. Traditionally, when you've met with local officials, mayors, governors, they would recite their economic statistics. They would talk about GDP growth, jobs, etc. Because to get ahead, you grew the economy, created jobs, avoided a big scandal, minimized social unrest, and you were, you were on your way up. Today... They know that's not the game. So when you talk to them, they are giving you the statistics also on air quality. You know, sometime in late March, I was in Urbay, which is ground zero of dirty air, of the 73 provinces that rank last. You know, I could hardly see the sky, and I said, you know, holy cow. And yet they're, they're citing statistics that it's 12% better than it was last year. Well, <laughs> at least they're, they're, they're focused on it, you know. And, and on the one hand, it's funny, but the president and general party secretary, Xi Jinping, is, is focused on coming up with a plan for this mega metropolis, you know, these three large cities to uh, clean the air and, and reduce carbon emissions and be more energy efficient. China's brought 300 million people out of poverty into the middle class. There's another 300 million behind that, and they largely will live in cities. Uh, what's at stake with China's urbanization? Why should we care? Well, you're talking about the second largest economy in the world, and it's on track in the not-too-distant future to knock us off the perch we've had for 150 years as the largest economy. Now, it still will have income or GDP per capita well below the U.S., and they've got, you know, many, many poor people. But this country produces and consumes half of the cement, half of the steel, half of the coal. So I think one of the biggest economic events in China and around the world will be the next 300 million people. That's the size of the United States of America going to the cities. And the urbanization model they have right now doesn't work. They know it. They built cities for cars, not people. They've got these, you know, eight-lane highways. They've got these big, huge blocks. And the bad news is this is a country that's addicted to coal. Almost 70% of the fuel mix is domestic coal. The good news is there's some easy wins. 
Half of all new buildings going up are going up in China. 40% of carbon emissions come from buildings. They've got terrible practices in terms of energy-efficient buildings. So we can do work with people like Lawrence Berkeley Labs out here and Rocky Mountain Institute. And there's a lot that can be done in terms of building codes and building practices. And the cleanest, cheapest energy there is is energy you don't use. So there's big, big opportunities in energy efficiency. You write that corruption eats about 3 to 5% of the Chinese economy. The president has embarked on a big anti-corruption campaign. Some people think it's a power grab. What do you think it is? Well, this is a man who has set out this really, really ambitious plan to reform the country. Not just economic reform, not just a new urbanization model, but change the foreign policy, military, the, the relationship between the, the central government and the provinces without the rule of law uh, as we know it. And so he's looking to do this through the party. And this is a party that is rife with corruption. And so the anti-corruption campaign is huge. I, you know, I would certainly suspect that when he goes after the state-owned pillars of the economy that are you know, vested interest in or resisting reform, it's, it's a tool in the toolkit to, to help drive reforms. But I, I think people make a mistake if they say, well, it, it's just a purge. He's not going after corruption. He's, he's been very clear in saying the Communist Party will not survive unless they go through this self-rectification and, and that they really curb this. There's these tension points, and it's obviously a complicated relationship, and one of them is is human rights, often at the center of of U.S.-China relations. Some people would say environmental issues are human rights issues. You you bet. I mean, people say to me, why are we working with China when we disagree with where they are on human rights? But we are a big country, and we have not a single-dimensional policy. We We have a number of policies that are very important, and... I view economic issues, I view environmental issues. You know, there's a whole set of issues that are human rights issues. You uh, helped secure the release of Yang Jianli, a a human rights activist there. In August of 2008, which wasn't a very happy time for me. And I can't think of of very many happy days during that six-month period. But there was one day shortly before I had to act on Fannie and Freddie, which was a bright spot because Yang Yang Li, who was a, you know, a, a pro-democracy activist, came to see me with his wife and two small children to thank me for securing his release. And the interesting thing about that was he thanked me for two things. He thanked me for securing his release, but for the work I'd been doing on the environment in China going back for a number of years. And then I thought back on how and when I'd done this, which had been a year earlier, and Barney Frank had asked me to see what I could do because Yang Yang Lee's family lived in Massachusetts. And I had just come back from the Qinghai province. I was at the Tibetan Plateau. And I was there to, to really witness firsthand what climate change was doing and the glaciers were melting and, and the temperature was rising so quickly. And I, when I came back and met with the leaders... The same leaders that he was, you know, protesting against also thanked me for visiting that area and for the work I'd done on the environment. So the strategic economic dialogue was a mechanism we put in place to make progress on economic issues, but it was economic issues written very broadly and defined those as energy and environmental issues. And we were putting in place the 10-year framework on energy and the environment then which was a good cornerstone that really, I think, helped the Obama administration do this climate deal. But my view is if you get the economic issues right and you have common ground there, other issues are easier to do, like uh, Yang Yang Li. And and to me, I've, I've got no end of respect for people that care deeply about issues like he does and are willing to take the kinds of risks that he took. I work on environmental and economic issues, but I have just great admiration for people like Yang Yang Li.
We're talking about America's climate policy at Climate One. Subscribe to our free podcast at climateone.org. Greg Dalton will continue his conversation with Henry Paulson in just a moment. We're picking up the conversation now about international and financial challenges for U.S. policy in a changing climate. Greg Dalton is speaking with former Goldman Sachs CEO and China expert Hank Paulson. Along with billionaires Michael Bloomberg and Tom Steyer, Paulson created the Risky Business Project, which evaluates the financial cost of not acting on climate change. Here's Greg. Kat Taylor is a Harvard overseer, and she thinks that uh, Harvard should divest from fossil fuels. Is that a good move? You went to Harvard that, Business that's, School. That's a, that's a difficult question. You know, when I'd sit there and look at students demonstrating and wanting to divest from this or that, I, I pose this. But I have to admit that today, one of the things I really find is a bright spot is young people care. This is a generational issue. They care so much about this. And so I love the fact that they're pushing for it. And I haven't studied how easy it would be. It would be easy for me to divest from coal. Okay. That would be... It's a bad investment. That that would be the first step. That would be the first step, because I think it's a bad investment. The other thing, which I feel very strongly about, which comes out of risky business, is I think the SEC should be forcing disclosures so that everyone would understand the risks, you know, the climate change risks. And to me, that goes beyond fossil fuels, and it goes to stranded assets. Uh, Companies building plants in the wrong places, building them in the coastal areas and, and, you know, rebuilding New Orleans so you can flood it again, that kind of thing. So I, I happen to think that those kinds of risks should be disclosed. And if they're disclosed, then I think that goes a long way to solving the issue rather than dictating what a what an endowment can invest in. So it sounds like you're entertaining the possibility of maybe divestment someday or you want to study further. what, What I would say, and again, I haven't studied it. If I were running an endowment, I'd look very hard at divesting coal. To me, that would be an easy thing. But I tell you, it's a it's a slippery slope because why do we invest in tobacco stocks? Okay, why do you invest in liquor stocks? Gun okay? stocks. Yeah. You know, why do you invest in? So I, I would much rather just see the risk disclosed, and I think some of these are very bad investments. I'd like to understand what the risks are with individual uh, companies, and and I think the climate risks are risks that should be disclosed. I would probably not be favoring divestment. But do I love the fact that young people are demonstrating for this right now? You betcha. You know, that's great. Secretary Pulse, I'd like to ask you about how you talk with Republicans and people on Wall Street about climate change. That's a very difficult conversation. Well, I, I don't look at this being broken down by Republicans or Democrats. When I worked with clients, corporate clients, I sort of knew where they were going to be on different issues based upon what their company was doing in the industry. When I look at senators or congressmen, if you tell me what their state is or what their district is, without even knowing them, I can almost tell you where they'll be on some of these issues. And it's not just Democrat versus Republican. Jay Rockefeller was a liberal Democrat. He ran for the first time in West Virginia and lost on environmental issues. And he was liberal on everything, but let me tell you where he was with coal when he was in there and where he was with climate. And when I was Treasury Secretary and I would go in and meet with various people and they didn't know I was an environmentalist. So when I'd be talking with Democrats from a number of these states, they'd say, oh, yeah, don't worry, I'm speaking about this, but I'm, don't worry, I'm not going to go too far. You know, autos are in my state or coal or whatever. So I think what it really comes down to is how do you change the American people and get the American people where they need to be so the politicians fall in line. And I I think the reason I like the risky business study is this was nonpartisan. So Tom Steyer, Bloomberg, and I chaired it. George Schultz, you know, very respected Republican. Bob Rubin, business people like Greg Page of Cargill, really thoughtful people. 
and we didn't go at it in terms of here's the policy prescription. All we did was use the very best business analysis, the very best science, and then we drilled down. We could do it by, by county, by zip code, and you could say, what's the range of risks? What are the economic risks? And uh, you know, all sorts of deniers suddenly became very interested. And it turns out many of them are very worried about climate change. But they're afraid if they say so, there's going to be an excuse for big government. And what you need to really help people understand is it's going to be just the opposite. If we don't act on some of these things now, the government's going to play a bigger and a bigger role unnecessarily. Because every time there is an extreme weather event or an event that hits some industry, or I don't care if it's a forest fire, a tornado, or a hurricane, a drought, whatever, the government comes in, it's expensive, we all pay, and that's a big fiscal cost. And so I, I do think we, we're, we're making progress here, and the idea of looking at it as an economic risk and saying, what's the cost of not acting? So start understanding that and, and looking at it as risk management. And a lot of cities have been taking that data and, and understanding it, and there's been a lot of good movement at the municipal level in this country and at the state level. And we want businesses to start understanding the risks, integrating it into the decision-making process. We want them to start disclosing. I'd like them to be required. I'd like the SEC to enforce its rules. And then I'd like businesses to lobby their political representatives. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome. Hi, uh, Secretary Paulson. I really appreciate that you started the Risky Business Project along with Tom Steyer and Bloomberg and, and Greg Page and others. When that first started, there was a, a press conference at which you said this. You said that the financial meltdown of 2008 was nothing compared to the climate crisis. A huge takeaway here is that cautious approach a business-as-usual approach is actually radical risk-taking. There is no way we can wait until we all recognize the risks and then call on the federal government to bail us out. If you wait to quantify and know everything, any businessman that's ever worked on managing any crisis knows it's too late and you're looking in the rearview mirror. So the longer you wait, the more dangerous it is. What makes this so vicious is it is not an immediate crisis. It just strangles you because the longer you wait, this is cumulative, your options are limited, and you can't avoid the worst outcomes. And so I just was trying to help people understand that. But I I think we need to do more work in the United States to get people ready to take the kinds of actions they need to take. And I would say a positive thing. We, We may focus a lot on what the federal government isn't doing. But the federal government is doing things. And when you look at what's happening at many cities throughout the United States of America and, and many states, but particularly the cities, almost everywhere, it is very impressive. So don't think we're doing nothing. We're doing a lot. We've got a lot more to do. Let's have our next question for Secretary Paulson at the Commonwealth Club. If you were a czar of climate change, what would you do as far as some of the priorities and how would you do it? What would I do? If you were a czar of climate change, what would you do? I would put a price on carbon. Right now, we do the opposite. We incentivize carbon production. So when people hear carbon tax, they get up in arms, and it's, it's counterproductive. And carbon tax means different things to different people. But the question is, how do you put a price on it? How big is that price? And then what happens with the revenues? The revenues could all go back to the American people. The revenues could be used to, a big part of it, to go to lower income. There's a lot that could be done here. Tax is a dirty word among a lot of people. And so I suggested that in a New York Times op-ed piece, and that drew a lot of fire. And I think it's counterproductive to be pressing one solution over another right now. I think we've got to all agree that there's a big problem and then figure out what's the right way to do. I happen to think putting a price on carbon and and setting up the proper incentives would be a tremendous thing for our economy and for the American people if done properly. You're listening to Climate One with Greg Dalton. 
Greg's been talking with former Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson about America's policy toward China in the era of human-caused climate disruption. We're turning now to a conversation with Gina McCarthy, who helped Mitt Romney craft his climate plan when he was Massachusetts governor. As current head of the EPA, she's leading the charge for President Obama's Clean Power Plan. A career environmental regulator, she says that moving to clean energy can also strengthen our economy. Here's Greg Dalton in conversation with Gina McCarthy. Climate is often talked about as a cost, as a negative thing. What's the upside in moving to a clean energy economy? What's the opportunity here? Every time we have moved ahead and reduced pollution, the result has been a really healthier environment and economic growth. We have never had to choose between the two. With the issue of climate, it could be more of an opportunity to actually move to a more sustainable economy for this country and have our solutions, our technologies, moved across the world. I've interviewed many corporate executives, Ford Motor Company, Walmart. A lot of big businesses are behind moving on on climate change. Why isn't more being done when the evidence is clear, the science is clear, a lot of businesses support it, yet the action isn't happening? I think the action is happening as as much as we'd like, no. But I think that we are now seeing renewables in levels that we haven't seen before, and that's because they're becoming very cost-competitive. Since this administration took office, we're looking at wind power tripling and we're looking at solar going tenfold. Solar now is competitive with fossil fuel. We have energy efficiency technologies we've never had before. And I think President Obama's message is that in order to figure out how we get to the levels we need in 2050, we do not have to have already charted every path or found every technology we're going to need to get there. But we know that we can make leaps and bounds by the technology innovations that we've already put on the table and to make money on. There is absolutely no reason why we shouldn't take action now and fully expect that the U.S. will do everything the U.S. always does, which is we innovate, we grow new companies, we find the new solution. EPA's job is to send a long-term signal on where investment should be had, not cost, Greg, investments. So when you have an opportunity here to basically send a signal that this is where investment needs to happen, this is where people will save money, this is the future people want, we will find ways of innovating even in the federal government. <laughs> but only after everybody else does it. Yeah. No, yeah, just yeah, kidding, yeah. Just, just kidding, only kidding, only kidding. What other countries are innovating faster? Is, is there a possibility that the U.S. could lose its innovation edge in the clean energy race? I think it is possible because you're seeing a lot of investment being made now in in Europe and Asia on new technology improvements for renewable energy. But I do think that the U.S. has an edge in this race if we keep moving it forward because we have multinational companies that are headquartered in the U.S. that are already saying, hey, let's, let's think about this differently. Let's stop dwelling on how bad it could be and let's start moving the actions forward. And we have a program that, that many of you probably know. If the polling is correct, eight out of ten of you should know. Did you ever see Energy Star? See that little blue label on all the appliances? Guess what that is? It's a greenhouse gas label because it's all about energy efficiency. It was started as a greenhouse gas program. We just forgot to talk about it for quite a few years that way. (laughs) Now we are. There's 1,600 partners with us on Energy Star driving new technologies into the market that are saving people huge amounts of money and lowering the greenhouse gas emissions by huge amounts. We have opportunities here. We are geared up for it. We know how to work markets. We know how to make money. I think what government just has to do is set standards like we always had for pollution. What's healthy? What do we need to achieve? What kind of timeline should we look at? And then the rest just happens. And another institution that's also integrating it is the Vatican. The Catholic Church has a covenant on climate. There's been a lot of talk recently about Pope Francis and what what he's doing. How do you see that changing the debate and framing this as a moral issue? 
When you talk about this as a moral obligation, when you point out the direct public health impacts and indirect associated with climate change, people get it. And the Pope is actually being very aggressive in calling attention to this issue and its relationship with an inclusive economy. And I actually went to Rome to meet with his advisors uh, because I knew that he was working on an encyclical. Now, I can't say that I've read or participated in writing many of those, um, (laughs) so I wasn't telling him how to do that. But I wanted him to know that he's not alone in recognizing that this is a moral challenge. And I wanted him to know that the big countries, the big polluters like the United States and China, are making real commitments now. 30% of Congress are Catholics. Do you think that the Pope encyclical could do something that President Obama couldn't, which is change the politics on this issue? I think they're a great dynamic duo. I want them to both do whatever their authorities are. (laughs) Batman and Superman, there you go. I have to say that I am Catholic, so I may be um, overestimating his influence on me. He's pretty influential. (laughs) But uh, I think around the world it's quite amazing. He blogs and and tweets and all those kinds of things. I had a great time when I I went to the Vatican to talk to them about the Pope's interest in this. And they were very clear that it is a very strongly held belief that he has that this is the absolute right thing to do and that this is a moral issue. It is about poverty. It is about taking care of the least of these. And we work with a variety of, of faith leaders, not just in the Catholic faith, but across all faiths. It's an ecumenical movement, and there are many people that see this as being an essential issue, an essential moral issue that the faith community needs to engage in. And, and I think that that gives us new voices at the table to talk to people who maybe have not understood or embraced the issue of climate change from leaders that they will listen to. It's enormously important that this be a very multifaceted discussion among all cultural sectors, all religions. Care for creation is is a common theme across a lot of religious traditions. But a lot of people were upset recently when the president approved drilling in the Arctic. So help us understand drilling in the Arctic. Yeah. Those leases went out a long time ago, and the decision was not made to open it. The decision was made to to try to make it as protective as possible as it moves forward. It's never going to be, you know, snap your fingers and everybody lines up and we figure out how to to do this. It's going to be a struggle, and there'll be difficult decisions all along the way. Seems like saying it's a moral issue, but then all the above energy policies kind of trying to have it both ways or say it's moral but avoid some really hard choices. I think the president's job is to make sure that we do this in a way that is deliberate but maintains opportunities for the market to make choices. The issue with carbon is it's really no different than any other pollutant out there. And we have to just send the right signals and the rest happens. If you don't think the energy world is already moving away from fossil to lower carbon sources, then you haven't watched where the energy world is investing its money, (laughs) because it is. And how are low oil prices affecting this? Some people would say low oil prices means, hey, I can buy an SUV, oil is cheaper. On another side, it keeps the tar sands in the ground and makes some of the oil in economically or environmentally sensitive areas uneconomic. So is cheap oil working for you or against you? What I see is that the oil prices being low are causing the industry to regroup and to rethink. And I think you're going to see diversification. They're really worried about relying on just one fuel. And you're going to see a lot of transition and you're going to see a lot of more efficiency brought into that system. How dramatic that happens, I don't know. And it might in some sectors be better and others not. But I think every fossil fuel person right now is thinking that climate change is real and a low carbon future is inevitable. Also the idea of unburnable carbon and carbon bubbles starting to really gain traction in Wall Street. What they're trying to figure out is where their place is and how they maintain their place in that system. We're talking about environmental protection and energy policy at Climate One. Join the conversation on Twitter using our handle, at Climate One. Greg Dalton will continue his conversation with Gina McCarthy in just a moment. We're continuing the conversation now about the role of the EPA in protecting our water, sky, 
and Pocketbook, with EPA Director Gina McCarthy and our host, Greg Dalton. Here's Greg. Senate Democrats recently rebuffed the president on TPP, Mm -hmm. the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Are you satisfied with the environmental protections in TPP? The additional environmental protections in TPP are really quite remarkable. If you care about the sustainability of fish in the ocean, it is the first time that that is a front and center issue to look at sustainable fisheries. If you're worried about wildlife trafficking, that's the first time that that is going to be accounted. These are issues that I think are increasingly important. I respect everybody's discussion about this, but I think the president is right. We need to move forward to try to address these issues. Protecting the environment has not always been so partisan, and I want to roll a clip of someone who was here recently. This is George Schultz, who was the former Secretary of State and former Secretary of Treasury in the Nixon administration when the EPA was created. So let's listen to George Schultz talking about the EPA. So I had in creating the EPA, and I've watched it over the years, and it seems to me it has proven itself as a very useful nag to keep after us. And we have better, cleaner air, cleaner water. You would much rather breathe the air in any American city than breathe it in Beijing. Thank you, EPA. <laughs> so there's a little uh, a love note from George Schultz. That was a Republican talking about the EPA. Can we know. get back to a place where the environment is not a partisan issue? You know, I think for most people, it isn't. People are concerned about this. One of the um, really fun things that I've done is I went to Beijing, and it was right after the U.S. Embassy put a particulate monitor on the embassy, and that's U.S. soil. So we put a monitor up. We trained them on how to analyze the data, and they started tweeting out the results because people were worried about whether their kids were safe being outside that worked in the embassy. And all of a sudden, that data became available to the entire city. And people started getting very anxious about the fact that we were showing levels of PM and they were markedly different than the monitors that the Chinese government was reporting on. Shocking. Yes. Yeah, I know. But the, the really interesting part about that, this was a few years ago. When I came back last year, they had a new whole entire monitoring system in Beijing. We taught them how to manage it, and they have now a whole series of new analyzers there in in Beijing, and all of them are U.S. companies have manufactured those. (laughs) We spent a long time talking to them about, you now know you have an air pollution problem. You've got to fix it. Would you mind thinking about that in concert with a carbon strategy? Because they go hand in hand. When we go after the carbon pollution in our power sector, what you're going to see is gigantic general public health benefits just because you're getting some of the old fossil fuel units out that pump other pollutants like particulate matter into the air. And I, I think I think they're realizing that the way in which the U.S. has been able to grow our economy as strong as it is and have a, a healthy environment at the same time is the only stability that they really can rely on. And I may be overestimating the power of this, but the president was negotiating with China on a new joint announcement to really put defined goals on the table for carbon reductions. We put ours on the table, but for the first time, China talked about limiting their carbon pollution, not just an intensity goal. And that's a game changer in many ways. China's move puts pressure on India, puts pressure on Canada. It also takes away the argument that what we do doesn't matter because China and India are going to fry the earth anyways. So how's that changed the dynamics, the the political dynamics? Because now China has put their cards on the table, as you said. It changes the international dynamics tremendously. The president was confident that he could deliver real domestic action here. We found how to do that. He has a whole plan, not just what EPA is doing, but our other parts of the administration. And when he went to China, he was able to leverage Chinese action. And I think that that is going to change the dynamics. 
I'd like to go to our lightning round, a series of yes or no questions. Oh, Congress tries to do this to me, and I don't ever respond appropriately. So I just want to warn you, I have trouble with yes or no's. You're not under oath, and uh, so... uh, You can't make me, that's all I'm telling you. (laughs) Do not now recollect, yes, yeah. (laughs) I do not now, nor have I ever. Environmentalist self-righteousness can be annoying and counterproductive. Well, that's a yes. Okay. You are sick and tired of the Keystone Pipeline. Oh, absolutely. Is he ever going to make that decision? I sure hope so. (laughs) Yes, of course, of course, of course. If North Korea, Iran, or Syria were responsible for climate change, Republicans would be clamoring to fund a war on warming. (laughs) Should we start that rumor and see what happens? (laughs) I'm just, yeah, so that's a, yeah, this is the last uh, yes or no question for our lightning round. More members of Congress are in the climate closet than the gay closet. <laughs> all I know is that's a big closet and it's full. That's all I know. <laughs> okay, we'll leave it to... Um, your imagination there for Gina McCarthy. Water's a big deal. We talk about climate. How is the drought connected to climate? The West was built on the back of snowpack that is going away. I know. I think we've all known that water is where it's at first with climate. There's plenty of evidence that it's been in other countries the reason for wars to be fought. (laughs) And it's a major concern. Not just droughts, but floods. And that's the dynamic that's so difficult to explain to people who aren't enmeshed in the climate science, is they figure if you've got a downpour, you're all set. But it's serious business. And we have to take action to reduce the amount of carbon pollution because that's mitigation. But we have to spend a considerable amount of time working with states and communities on adaptation, what we call resilience. We have to. That's why every federal agency has gone through an adaptation plan to look at all the tools we have in place, all the decisions we make, what gets changed in the changing climate, whether it's because of the floods or because of the drought. Boston's going to be... I had the worst winter of my life this year. I live in Boston, but I work in Washington. And uh, we got more snow constantly than we've ever received. So we were all dancing when we beat that record because it gave us something. (laughs) Who wants to fall two inches short of the worst? So we can't say, it's the worst. We want to say, it's the worst. Um, what, we, what was your question? I don't know. I'm just, I'm just thinking about oh, drought, go, drought, going drought. to the bar yeah, yeah, and thinking it. about... Yeah, yeah it was the worst. But, but I, was in, I was actually in Kansas last year, and half the state was in a drought, and the other half was flooded. It's just amazing what's happening, and we are working really hard to understand the, the broad implications of the drought. It's, How do you explain to someone who says, it snowed, so global warming's not happening, or you know, it's these extremes, hotter, wetter, drier... Yeah. Is that related to climate? We keep explaining to them that it's about extreme weather events. It's about weather events that we normally have, but they're just going to be worse. I mean, there's no easier way to explain that. We have some students in the audience, and I'd like you to sort of think about them and what you say to them about their future and what our generation is doing to steward the resources for them. I think kids are great. I'd like to keep them around. <laughs> that's my first, Would you that's like my to, first message. Okay. I got to go over to Facebook um, and to Google. And one of the great things about kids is, is how much information they have that's available to them. Uh, EPA has a big emphasis now on citizen science mm-hmm. because I think we do need to get people more engaged in sciences, more able to access data without that being filtered by anybody, including the Environmental Protection Agency. We're developing technologies that are allowing people to understand what their local stream quality is, what their local air quality mm-hmm. is, and getting it out. Because when people have information, it is power. And when we saw the demonstration of Google Earth Engine, you know, being able to look and see about land changes and changes in water and changes associated with, with different types of activities that we regulate, it's just an amazing information that's going to be at their fingertips. And the world is going to be theirs to shape at some point in time. My hope is that we hand the one that's not quite so challenging. We're talking with U.S. EPA Administrator Gina McCarthy at Climate One. Let's have our audience question. Welcome. 
So this question is coming from the perspective of a 16-year-old interested in going into public policy. What message do you think, like the single shortened message that we should be sending out about the California drought? The single message is that it is directly related to a changing climate and that everybody needs to be part of the solution. Everybody. Thank you for that question. Let's have our next audience question for Administrator McCarthy. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what the EPA is doing to address what's often referred to as climate change's evil twin, ocean acidification. It's evil twin. I like that. Ocean acidification is the one issue that the IPCC is just beginning to get. The UN climate scientist. That's fine. He's told me no acronyms, and here I am acronyming. Um, Is that a word? I think we're beginning to really see the dangers associated with ocean acidification. I was out in Washington not long ago, and all of the Washington oyster beds are now moving to Hawaii. And it's because of the temperature and the acidification. EPA is working on those. The lead in the U.S. government is NOAA, the National Oceanographic Atmospheric Administration. Administration. (laughs) I say the acronyms, I forget what it stands for. (laughs) And we're working with them and with others on this. But it is very disconcerting, and you're absolutely right. It's a factor, a climate factor, which I don't think we've yet gotten our arms around or understood its full implications. But But its impacts are being felt. One implication is the coral reef dies. That's the bottom of the food chain for a lot of subsistence people in developing countries. That could have some real serious consequences. Let's go to our next question. I'm a big fan of the Clean Water Act, and I'm interested to understand the impact it can have on the agriculture community. And so I've been watching the lawsuit in Iowa about suing upstream nitrate. And I'm wondering how much uh, EPA is watching that lawsuit and implications for larger Clean Water Act. Well, I'm a fan of the Clean Water Act, too. Thank you. And I think we're all a fan of safe drinking water, so that's why I like it, right? Its impact on agriculture. We're, we're getting ready to finalize the clean water rule, um, which is going to be a really big opportunity for us. Now, you asked about the Iowa lawsuit. This is all about basically um, nutrients that are being emitted with a Des Moines water company is basically saying they have to treat water considerably more than they would otherwise and charge their customers for it as a result of what they are saying are nutrients that are being put into their upstream waters that are ending up coming to their uh, water system. And so there are a variety of lawsuits happening. But honestly, we are, I think, working as hard as we can with USDA and agriculture to find opportunities for reductions in nutrient pollution. They know that they have a responsibility to be a good steward of the environment. And I think if we can continue with this partnership and bring science to the table, then I think we'll be able to resolve these issues in a way that allows them to do their business while everybody else can enjoy the, the clean water that we all have as a right. We're talking about the environment with US EPA Administrator Gina McCarthy at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's have our next question. Lake Erie had some big issues oh, yeah. contaminating the drinking water in Toledo. And I'd like to know how will the EPA be moving forward addressing pollution from CAFOs, the concentrated animal feeding operations, and other types of agriculture to prevent this from happening in the future? This is about uh, the western Lake Erie, which is very shallow, and it has what you call harmful algal blooms. And a harmful algal bloom had actually shut down the drinking water supply in the city of Toledo, for four days, it cost multi-millions of dollars, and it's because harmful algal blooms actually produce these, what they call cyanotoxins, which are very powerful toxins, that if they get in your drinking water, you don't want to be drinking it. In this particular area, it's surrounded by agriculture, and there's no question that nutrient pollution is, is impacting that, but it's also an issue of the temperature of that water getting much warmer, so it's a climate issue as well. So we're seeing these harmful algal blooms popping up in more places. And so we actually have a multi-pronged approach to this issue. Part of it includes working with agriculture and figuring out how we reduce the nutrient loading, but it's not the only issue, and it's not happening only in Western Lake Erie. So we have a a cross-federal agency effort, not just to work with agriculture and to work with USDA on conservation practices and getting buffers and, and our ability to address that, but we are doing really 
cool stuff mm -hmm. with new technologies to monitor harmful algal blooms so that you can see when they may be impacting a water supply or about to. EPA put a platform on the space station mm. to figure out whether we could monitor water quality to be able to track harmful algal blooms, and it actually worked. And so we work with NOAA and with NASA, and we actually have a whole tracking system where we can, on a daily basis, see where these things are so that we can inform water managers, water treatment managers, every day about whether any harmful algal blooms are approaching so they can make decisions about their water intakes and whether to shut them off or not. So there's lots of things going on that relate to what's causing the problem, but also recognizing that in a changing climate, these things are happening and will keep happening and use science and technology to track it and prevent it from leading to health consequences. Next question. Hi, we've talked a lot about water today and you know the drought and the importance of clean drinking water. Mm. And so I wanted to get your perspective, and including the EPA's and the president's um, thoughts around fracking. And um, it's a really huge issue right now. And on the one hand, I understand that it's helping to increase our domestic oil production. But on the other hand, we've seen reports of it causing earthquakes. And there's obvious signs that it's impacting our drinking water. So I was just curious as to what your, your thoughts on that was. The water quality issue is something that Congress actually asked EPA to look at. And we have been doing that for a few years. And they told us to look at the whole water cycle and where hydrofracking can impact or potentially impact water supplies. And we have done a series of about 18 different uh, research projects to be able to answer that question about where the vulnerabilities are in terms of their ability to impact. And we also have set the stage to work with every state in which hydrofracking is happening so we can make sure that they understand its implications and that the work they're doing either in best management practices or regulations can account for what we would call those vulnerability points and be able to ensure that it's being done safe and responsibly. Because as most of us know, states are really the ones on the front line of these issues and EPA's job is to get them the information they need to do a good job. Greg Dalton has been discussing cutting carbon pollution with the head of the EPA, Gina McCarthy. Thank you for joining us this hour. Podcasts of this and other programs are available on our website, climateone.org. There you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. Please join us next time for another Climate One discussion about powering America's future. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California. Greg Dalton is our executive producer and host. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. Alyssa Carr is the assistant producer. The audio engineer is John Rieger, with help from Will Llewellyn. I'm Claire Schoen, the editor. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Gloria Duffy. Climate One is presented in association with KQED Public Radio. Mm -hmm.